Welcome back to Take a Closer Book. I'm your host, Guinevere Lee. I got a slew of comments from last week's discussion, and all of them are about how amazing Inigo is. I won't lie, when I was a kid, I loved Inigo so much I actually started studying fencing. Most people stated that they loved him just because he had the more compelling backstory, which is honestly hard to argue with. Trom Mitch said that Inigo had a purpose. Sometimes, when I'm sad, I think of how he fearlessly continued his quest and kept screaming, you killed my father, and kept on going no matter what. And added that Fezzik made me sad because he had shit parents. Alright folks, let's not waste any more time and take a closer look at Chapter 6, The Festivities. In Summary before we get into chapter 6, I need to backtrack to chapter 5 for a second. I forgot to mention a pretty big reveal. After Buttercup promises to return with Humperdinck, who has sworn not to harm Wesley, Humperdinck turns to the Count, pointing out that he never swore Rugen wouldn't harm Wesley. He tells Rugen to take Wesley to the Zoo of Death. That's why Rugen knocks out Wesley at the end. I'm sure most people listening to this have seen the movie, so they knew that, but just in case anyone is coming to this virgin, I just wanted to clarify that. The chapter opens with Goldman taking another stab at literary critics. One in particular, the Florinese guru, as Goldman refers to him, claims that this chapter is where Morgenstern's satiric genius is at its fullest flower. And Goldman takes the opportunity to mock him as the kind of man who uses descriptions like fullest flower and delicious drolleries in his essays. Goldman shows the same kind of contempt towards literary critics as English professors no doubt feel towards badly written essays. This satiric genius is about 40 pages worth of engagement parties that Goldman cuts. Apparently every night a party is thrown and Humperdinck has to wrestle over seating arrangements and things like that to keep everyone happy. The only thing of note, Goldman summarizes, is that Humperdinck has begun to show unprecedented affection towards Buttercup, and for the first time has become beloved by his people and seen as a hero for rescuing Buttercup. After a month of this, an exhausted Buttercup falls asleep, wondering where Wesley is and whatever happened to Inigo and Fezzik. The proper chapter begins with a flashback to Inigo waking up, tied to a tree, after his duel with Wesley. After getting loose, he heads back to Florin. Vizzini had told him that in case of emergency, they are to meet back at the beginning. Since Vizzini got the job to kidnap Buttercup in the Sieves Quarter of Florence City, that's where he goes. He's nervous about going there alone, though, and also feels a deep pain at being defeated by the Man in Black. He's about to start a soliloquy about said pain when Goldman again interrupts the narration. Goldman explains that he's cutting out a six-page soliloquy about the pain of fleeting glory, but then goes on to give his own soliloquy, first talking about how Morgenstern's previous novel was a failure, and then about how Robert Browning's first published work of poetry sold no copies, which is a true story. I looked it up. Inigo, anxious, afraid, and alone, returns to the thieves' quarter. He's afraid because he knows if Piscini or Fezzik don't come to collect him, then he will once again be a failure. To comfort himself, he once again turns to alcohol and begins to wait. Then we get Fezzik's flashback. He wakes up and first goes after Vizzini. He finds him napping next to some wine and then realizes he's dead. Horrified, Fezzik then runs back to the Cliffs of Insanity to find Inigo, but the Spaniard is gone. Unfortunately, even though Inigo made a rhyme to help Fezzik remember to go back to the beginning, Fezzik can't remember what the rhyme was. He runs off until he finds a cave to hide in. Soon, the children from the nearby fishing village find him, and the bullying he experienced in his youth begins all over again. 
Finally, we learn what Wesley's fate was. Wesley wakes up in a cage on the fifth floor of the Zoo of Death, a cage you'll remember from earlier chapters Humperdinck was reserving for a worthy opponent. The albino, or zookeeper, who tends to the animals arrives. He mostly speaks in nods and shrugs, and begins to patch Wesley's wounds from the R.O.U.S.'s. Wesley realizes since they're patching his wounds, they mean to keep him alive to torture him. Wesley has no problems with this, confident they won't break him. Morgenstern, on the other hand, informs us that they break him anyway. We skip forward one month after the escape from the fire swamp, and two months before the wedding. King Lotharin's health has taken another turn for the worse, having running out of Miracle Men except for Miracle Max, but who would hire back a Miracle Man they'd already fired? Humperdinck turns to doctors. Predictably, within 48 hours of the doctor's tried and true medications, the king is dead. The wedding takes place, though it's barely an afterthought for Humperdinck, who has become insanely busy since becoming king. As with their engagement, they once again go to the balcony to announce their wedding. Buttercup once more goes down to walk among the people, and at first is shown the same reverence and affection, until an old woman begins to viciously boo her. Humperdinck sends down soldiers to drag the woman away, but Buttercup asks her why she's booing. The old woman screams at her that she isn't worthy of cheers. Buttercup chose gold over love. Buttercup betrayed Wesley to become a queen. As the woman screams and boos get louder and louder, finally Buttercup wakes up screaming. It had all been a dream, and the wedding is still two months away. Here Goldman pauses to tell us about what happened when his father first read him this scene. Since young Billy is only ten, he still has a child's expectation that every story, no matter how terrible the villain or difficult the trials, will have a happy ending. Since Billy can't accept that Buttercup would marry Humperdinck over Wesley, he argues with his father. And his father, being a proud man, simply stops reading and leaves Billy alone for the night. Billy spends all night trying to figure out ways for Buttercup to escape this fate, but no matter what happy ending he comes up with, there's this lingering discomfort. The next night, his father returns to finish the story. Billy is overjoyed that it was all a dream, but the uneasiness he felt the night before never really leaves him. Years later, now a teenager, Billy befriends a local author named Edith Nicer. She's an author of relationship and parenting books and is a real person. Thank you, Google, even though you couldn't tell me if Goldman actually knew her growing up. Billy really respects Edith, especially since he's already decided he also wants to become an author. One day, Billy loses a game to his friend and is reassured he'll probably win next time. Edith hears this and bluntly tells Billy that things don't work out that way because life isn't fair. For Billy, this isn't so much a revelation as it is a reconciliation with the feeling he had at 10 years old but couldn't find the words to explain. Life isn't fair, and despite countless scholars saying over and over again that The Princess Bride is a satire, Goldman says it's a book about life not being fair. Back to Buttercup, and her nightmares get worse. The next night, she dreams about giving birth to Humperdinck's daughter, but the baby can't drink her milk since there's no love in it. The baby cracks and turns to dust in her hands. She wakes up screaming. The next night, she gives birth to a son this time, but her son refuses to see her. The boy hates her, accusing her of killing Wesley and that her love is poison. She wakes up screaming. The next night, she tries to avoid sleep with copious amounts of tea, but eventually falls asleep. This time, she dreams of her own birth, 
She watches as her parents fawn over her, until the midwife informs them that although the baby is beautiful, it has no heart, and they'd be better off throwing Buttercup away and trying again. So her parents strangle her, and she wakes up gasping for breath. And then, apparently, the nightmares become too terrible to write down. Fifty nights until the wedding, and Buttercup finally realizes she cannot marry Humperdinck. She goes to him to call off the wedding, but he convinces her that since she broke Wesley's heart in the fire swamp, he might not want to take her back. A terrible thought that hadn't even occurred to Buttercup. Humperdinck says he'll use his four fastest ships to find the dread pirate Robert's ship Revenge and deliver a letter to Wesley. But if Wesley doesn't return, he asks she marry him instead of killing herself. Buttercup accepts. And here, finally, we come to learn that it was Humperdinck himself who hired the Sicilian crowd to murder Buttercup and frame Gilder. Humperdinck just wants a war, and now he plans to murder Buttercup on their wedding night. With 50 days left to go before the wedding, they begin to torture Wesley. They do so under the pretense that they want him to confess to the attempted kidnapping of Buttercup promising to release him if he'll just tell them who hired him. Wesley answers every question truthfully, and in return is tortured mercilessly. Of course, Wesley feels none of this. He screams and struggles, but all of this is a show. Whenever the pain begins, he simply takes his mind to Buttercup. As long as he can keep her image in his mind, nothing can hurt him. After... As the albino tends to Wesley's wounds again, he warns Wesley that he should tell Humperdinck and Rugen whatever they want to hear. The albino warns that soon the machine will be ready, but Wesley just ignores him. Buttercup goes to Humperdinck for help writing her letter to Wesley, and Humperdinck spends four hours listening to her gush over her love, all while subtly pumping her for information about Wesley. Finally, it pays off, and he learns of Wesley's childhood fear of spinning ticks. Side note, spinning ticks aren't real, but while researching for this chapter, I learned that's actually a method for removing ticks by, I don't know, spinning them until they come loose, I guess. Anyway, Humperdinck returns to Wesley and covers him in spinning ticks. Afterwards, Humperdinck is very pleased with himself, but Rugen does not seem impressed. Humperdinck is disappointed, especially since he doesn't really care much for torturing. He's only doing it because he's started to feel jealous towards Wesley. Even though he doesn't actually love Buttercup, he can't stand the idea that he might be inferior to Wesley. Prince Humperdinck, and Goldman reminds us he's still only a prince since King Lotharon's death was only in Buttercup's dream, is furiously busy planning his wedding his country's 500th anniversary, his soon-to-be wife's murder, and the war that promises to break out in the aftermath. To help, he orders Yellen, the chief of all enforcement in Florence City, to create a brute squad. Humperdinck wants to make sure the castle is guarded properly for the wedding. He also demands that the thieves' quarters and the gilder assassins he convinces Yellen are hiding there, rounded up and thrown in prison until after the wedding. Yellen promises to have a brute squad assembled in a week. Just as Yellen is leaving, he hears a scream. In fact, everyone in Florence City hears the tormented cries of a poor street dog being tortured in Rugen's machine. The scream is unrecognizable as belonging to a dog, and it goes on for a terribly long time, sending children crying home. Rugen, on the other hand, is overjoyed because finally the machine has worked. As Rugen informs Humperdinck of his success, Buttercup comes in. Rugen takes a moment to ask Buttercup about Wesley, learning the that Wesley would never cry, except for the death of a loved one. Rugen returns to Wesley and brings the machine into his cage. 
It takes a long time for him and the albino to set it up. It's a massive machine with wheels and several suction cups of different sizes. Rugen tells Wesley that he knows Wesley has been faking his pain. He leaves Wesley with the machine overnight, hoping the anticipation will break down some of Wesley's defenses. The albino waits until Rugen is gone, and then offers Wesley a quick death with poison. Still confident he can withstand any torture, Wesley refuses, determined to live and be reunited with Buttercup. The next day, Wesley is indeed starting to feel a little frightened. Rugen takes notes during this whole process, hoping to add this information to the definitive book he's writing dedicated to the study of pain. The suction cups are attached to every part of Wesley, including under his eyelids, on his eardrums, and his tongue. Rugen turns the machine to his lowest setting of one, twenty being the highest. Wesley tries to go to his happy place, but is soon pulled out of it. The machine attacks every sense of his, and Wesley can't keep his thoughts clear. He experiences real agony for the first time. When the machine stops, Rugen explains that the machine sucks life from the victim, each number representing a year. So Wesley has had one year of his life sucked out. Wesley cries like a baby. Now it's five days before the wedding, and Rugen is distracted. Thinking about Wesley and the machine, by now Rugen has sucked away ten years from Wesley and his only focus is on continuing his experiment. We skip to 36 hours before the wedding. The brute squad is nearly finished emptying the thieves' quarter. A Spaniard with some impressive fencing skills is giving them some trouble, though. The Spaniard being Inigo, of course. Two members of the brute squad, a loud and quiet one, go to deal with him. The loud one tries to fool Inigo that there's a fencing competition he still has time to join if he leaves fast. But before Inigo can be lured outside, the quiet one suddenly knocks out the loud one. In his drunken state, Inigo realizes the quiet one is actually Fezzik. Fezzik hides Inigo while the rest of the thieves' quarters is emptied. He then spends the day trying to sober Inigo up, throwing him in a simmering hot bath, and then holding him down in an icy bath, doing this over and over again with occasional breaks for tea. Fezzik tells Inigo about Vicini's death. And while Fezzik doesn't tell Inigo about Rugen having six fingers, we have to assume that he did at some point, because as soon as Inigo is sober, he laments about how he can't figure out a plan to break into the castle to get revenge. Vizzini was the brains, and he's dead. Inigo knows the only way for him to get revenge is to replace Vizzini with the man in black. As dusk falls, Inigo and Fezzik begin to frantically search the city. Meanwhile, Rugen returns to the Zoo of Death, and we find a broken Wesley, twenty years of his life having been sucked away, crying at the mere anticipation of Rugen's return. And this is the time Buttercup goes to see Humperdinck, who is speaking with Yellen. Yellen is exhausted hearing about these apparent Gelder spies, but can only sigh as Humperdinck once again demands extra protection. He's decided that as soon as they're married, they'll ride the four whites to Florin Channel, escorted by all of Yellen's enforcers, and then surrounded by every ship in the Armada, they'll sail off to their honeymoon. To which Buttercup can't help but point out that every ship in the Armada isn't available, since the four fastest ships are supposed to be delivering a letter to Wesley. Humperdinck says he misspoke, but Buttercup finally recognizes that he's lying. With all but the main gate sealed, Humperdinck orders Yellen to guard the remaining gate with a hundred men. Buttercup waits until Yellen leaves to lay into Humperdinck, 
calling him a liar and a coward, and telling him that Wesley could outshine him in anything, including hunting. As she's yelling at him that no matter what, Wesley will come and rescue her, Humperdinck loses his temper. He grabs Buttercup by the hair, violently drags her down the hall, and locks her in her room. He then races to the zoo of death. Goldman recounts a scene from his childhood. As his father reads him this part, he stops for a moment and pretends he's lost his place. He starts reading again. Inigo allowed Fezzik to open the door, but young Billy stops him, convinced his father has skipped something. Still, remembering how his father stormed off the last time Billy tried to correct him, he carefully explains that he's pretty sure there's supposed to be a scene after Humperdinck races to the zoo of death and before Inigo and Fezzik come back into the story. His father closes the book and asks if his son trusts him. When Billy says yes, his father tells him that Wesley is about to die. Confused, Billy asks how can that be possible? Who will kill Humperdinck then? But his father says no one kills Humperdinck. At first, Billy is angry that his father would start reading him a story like that and bursts into tears. His father leaves him alone, and Billy cries his heart out. After an hour or so, his father returns and asks if Billy wants him to continue the story. He offers to skip the death scene, but with dry eyes now, Billy asks his father to tell him how Wesley dies. We go back into Morgenstern's text. Humperdinck reaches the zoo of death. Wesley is attached to the machine. Humperdinck ignores Rugen's cries not to put the machine to 20, turns the machine on. Like with the wild dog, another scream rips through Florence City, but this is far more terrifying. And the city takes notice. Buttercup, Yellen, the 100 brutes guarding the gate, everyone in the great square outside the castle, None of them know what it could possibly be, save for Inigo. Inigo recognizes the sound of ultimate suffering, since it's the same sound he had in his heart when he watched Rugen murder his father. Only the man in black would have cause to have a scream of ultimate suffering. Inigo and Fezzik run off to follow the sound of the scream. Back in the zoo of death, Wesley lies dead by the machine. Humperdinck and Rugen leave the disposal of the body to the albino. As the albino goes to fetch a wheelbarrow, he runs into Inigo and Fezzik, who have been drawn behind the castle. Fezzik and Inigo easily intimidate the albino into nodding and shrugging away the important information. He lets them know that a sailor was brought here by Rugen, and is being kept on the fifth level of the Zoo of Death. After showing them the entrance, Fezzik knocks him unconscious. Fezzik wonders why the zookeeper would tell them the truth, but Inigo is in a frenzy and doesn't care why. They rush into the zoo, a decision they'll soon come to regret. All right, let's do this analysis and opinion. This is obviously the low point of the story, when our heroes are in their darkest moment. Unlike in traditional stories, though, we have Morgan Stern and Goldman there not to reassure us, but telling us that we're right to be frightened and that things are only going to get worse. Even after the fake-out wedding scene, Goldman pops back up to let us know that just because Buttercup's dream wasn't real doesn't mean this story is going to end the way we want. It's not much of an analysis to say one of the main themes in this book is that life isn't fair, since Goldman spells it out very clearly and directly. 
However, it is interesting that Goldman is using a comedy to get that message across. Fairy tales are all about fairness. Good people are rewarded and bad people punished. But in this story, sometimes good people die. And we are told in chapter 6 that the main villain will not. Since it's such a funny and enchanting story, it's easy for readers to dismiss this and continue on. A similar thing happens with Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Even when the reader is told not to expect a happy ending, we can't help it. The idea is repeated a few times in this chapter. Rugen makes a similar statement when explaining his fascination with pain. To him, pain and life are interchangeable concepts. Life and death are not what people should be concerned about, but rather pain and death. This is the same sentiment Fezzik's mother told her son. Life is pain. And from this point on in the novel, the idea is repeated by more and more characters as we continue. And from this point on in the novel, the idea is repeated by more and more characters as we continue. This is also the chapter where Humperdinck shows his true colors. Up to this point, it seems like Rugen is being set up to be the main villain. Although Humperdinck has been shown as vain and arrogant, Buttercup has a high opinion of his honor, but now he's revealed as a liar, and worse, his jealousy has driven him insane with rage, to the point where he physically assaults Buttercup and murders Wesley. There's no question he's the main villain, which only makes it more frustrating when Mr. Goldman Sr. informs his son and the readers that Humperdinck will not get his comeuppance at the end. Remember, kids, life isn't fair. Moving on... Goldman is a master troller. Had he been born 50 years later, he would have ruled the message boards. I love, love, love how he interrupts someone else's soliloquy. In this case, Inigo's about fleeting glory, only to replace it with his own. It also harkens back to the original introduction, see episode 2, where he talks about his failed first novel and the difficulty of getting this novel made. Goldman in the novel hates hearing other people complaining, namely critics and scholars, but loves to vent his own frustrations. And finally, generally speaking, I think a lot of plot holes can be forgiven because it's supposed to be a fairy tale, but it has always confused me how suddenly Fezzik and Inigo know about the Six-Fingered Man. As a fairy tale, it works because as soon as the reader knows, it's almost like the characters become privy to that information. However, we can assume that since Fezzik has learned so much about Rugen and Humperdinck's activities, maybe keeping tabs on them from his position as one of the Brute Squad, it's not difficult to imagine that he either saw Rugen's hand or simply heard the gossip from his fellow Brutes. However, I would have liked to have read the scene where Inigo learns this information. Spoilers ahoy! Let's do some foreshadowing. As we are first brought to the Zoo of Death, we learn that there are at least two entrances, only one of which is survivable. People paying close attention in previous chapters will remember how the first four floors of the zoo are inhabited by vicious beasts of every form. And, of course, there's the matter of the albino who's a little too willing to give up the secret entrance. It becomes pretty clear that Fezzik and Inigo are about to go through the bad entrance. While Yellen is unsuccessfully looking for a elder spies, he hears rumors of the dread pirate Robert sailing all the way into the Florin Channel. He dismisses them 
but a wise reader would be a fool to do so. And finally, we have another throwaway mention of Miracle Max. I don't know about the older edition of this book, but in mine, the 2017 hardcover, there is a beautiful color map included, which points out Miracle Max's hut. So anyone reading this book and looking at that map would definitely know by this point that Miracle Max will come into the story soon, which is good considering by the end of this chapter, a miracle is desperately needed. Book V Movie! The biggest difference right off the bat between the book and the movie in this chapter is how much time passes. In the book, we have a good three months between Buttercup being kidnapped and the wedding. When she wakes up from her nightmare, there are still 60 days to go. In the movie, when she wakes up, there's 10 days to go. This results in shoving a lot of events together. The Wesley torture scenes are cut down to two separate sessions. We only get one of Buttercup's nightmares, and so on. I was always a little confused about how much could happen in the movie on the day of the wedding. The thieves' forest, as it's known in the film, is emptied. Fezzik and Inigo are reunited. Inigo sobers up. Wesley is murdered, etc, etc. I never understood how they had time to do any of it. But here there's definitely a lot more build and you can really feel the anxiety of the approaching wedding and whether how all these different characters will come together again. And, of course, we come to the matter of the Zoo of Death. I mentioned before the zoo was cut out of the movie, which is only half true. The fifth level survived, renamed the Pit of Despair. All the animals were cut out, but Rugen's machine and the albino are still featured heavily in the film. Also, the scene where Fezzik and Inigo meet the albino is different. Since there's no trick entrance, because there's no zoo full of man-eaters, there has to be another obstacle. In the film, Fezzik knocks the albino out before he can give them any information. And in quite possibly the cheesiest scene, Inigo prays to the ghost of his father for guidance, and it works. That brings us to the end of this episode. I hope that wasn't too much of a downer for everyone. This book can be a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. If you have any thoughts and want to be part of the listener feedback at the beginning of the episode, you can catch me on Twitter at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-E. Or look for me on Reddit under the same name. Every week I start a Princess Bride discussion in the Reddit community books. That's r slash books. And join us there. I will see you next Monday for Chapter 7. Wait for it. The Wedding. Dun, dun, dun. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have some 
something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast. Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth, and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E dot com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com.